Hello, and welcome to my podcast, where I discuss amongst myself topics, ideas, or events that interest me. Today, I will be continuing with the third part of my series on the economic modes which humanity has possessed throughout our time. So, I'm going to actually skip over mercantilism and the sort of medieval mode of economic engagement, because that is really not representative of what economic developments were happening in that time. So instead, I'm actually going to start with the Islamic Golden Age. After the Roman collapse in around 400 AD, trade across Europe crumbled, and kingdoms which came to inherit Roman territories became disparate. Europe entered into a dark age. A few hundred years after the Roman Empire collapsed, or around 100, Islamic caliphates began to rise in the Middle East. The Islamic Golden Age began around 800 CE and lasted until around 1300 CE. The first Islamic caliphate arose out of the Prophet Muhammad's military actions to solidify a state for Islam. Enabled by a religiously unified population and societal tenets well suited for the time, the Rashidun Caliphate came to control the Arabian Peninsula, the Levant, which is Syria and Israel, Persia, Egypt, other parts of Northeast Africa, and even parts of Turkey. The quick and massive expansion of the Islamic religion's territorial holdings came about militarily. However, religious conversion for pragmatic reasons on the part of their newly conquered people followed quickly after, solidifying the territorial holdings. The Islamic caliphates were some of the only times when a non-secular government was actually more capable than any other type of government at the time. The Rashidun and other caliphates which followed understood that economic unity and strength was a fundamental part of maintaining an empire and a religion. The caliphate somewhat merged the religion and fiscal systems in their territories. So when caliphates conquered territories, they were forbade by religious law to forcefully convert their subjects, and would instead give tax breaks to those who were a part of the Muslim religion. What followed their military conquest was the wide and willful conversion to the acceptance of Islam. Islam taught as one of its fundamental tenets zakat, which is the necessity of charity and the virtue of charity, and also the necessity of taxes in addition to zakat. The caliphates created a proto-free market economy, actually, driven by intercontinental trade through the Middle East being situated between Europe, Asia, and Africa, strong, widely accepted currencies like the dinar, and the trade protection of property, land or otherwise, being slaves. So as I said, one of the five central pillars of Islam is zakat. So zakat is a mandate that all Muslims must donate a certain portion of their wealth to charitable causes, and violation of this was a serious crime and delegitimized your earnings for that year. What emerged from this rule was the caliphates being some of the first welfare states, actually the first, the competency of the caliphates, coupled with the partial free market, meant that the government could spend a large chunk of its income on feeding and caring for the poor, sick, and old, rather than on other internal affairs and, you know, like the Romans acquiring food for almost everyone. What wasn't spent on feeding the needy could be spent similarly to how the invisible hand is supposed to work. Taxed or charitable money would make its way into institutions of religion, which replicated the Islamic system. 
educational and research institutes, which the Islamic Golden Age scholars invented optics, hospitals, algebra, surgery, and universities, and they also translated many ancient Greek manuscripts into Arabic, saving much of the lost knowledge that led to the Renaissance. And also institutions like trade, the money would make its way into roads, outposts for shipbuilding, or town and trade post expansion. The Caliphates produced a very modern and reliable system which lasted for over half a century. Their influence reached deep into Africa's deserts, into northern Europe and Russia, and far into China and India. Their influence came to affect Europe and led to the initiation of the Renaissance. So after the sacking of Constantinople by Crusaders and eventual conquest by the Ottoman Empire, Old knowledge of architecture and art found refuge in late medieval Europe, kicking off artistic movements in Europe which led to the Renaissance, as I said. The Ottoman Empire, or Fourth Caliphate, engaged in a duopoly trade with the Venetians, so both of those two states controlled the section of trade. Much of the knowledge from the Islamic Golden Age made its way into Europe and Italy through Venice, also contributing to the Renaissance. It was also around this time that European kingdoms and their governments began to consolidate their power. Uh, it became more concentrated in an assembly rather than being distributed between loosely allied townships, so parliaments and councils started being formed. The Ottomans, because of their duopoly on trade, helped along with the Renaissance and the colonial age as well. Driven to find cheaper trade routes than the Ottoman-Venetian one, Portugal and Spain started constructing and maintaining larger ships, and began regularly sailing thousands and thousands of miles for trade with India, Africa, China, and eventually the Americas. Once Spain and Portugal demonstrated to the world, or Europe more specifically, that it was more cost-effective to use sea routes and colonies and import slaves to those sea routes and colonies than to rely on the land-based trade of the Ottomans, other European countries did the same. Soon, European influence expanded to every corner of the globe, and here began the shift in economic practice from mercantilism into capitalism. The Dutch, recognizing the amount of ships and merchants lost to storms, pirates, and navigational errors, created a system of distributing ownership of a fleet of ships across many owners. Instead of one person owning a single ship and potentially losing all the money from that ship if it sank or its cargo and hull were otherwise destroyed, merchants, aristocrats, and the crown's estate would invest in a joint stock company in which a whole fleet of ships were owned by that company, which was in turn owned by a board, which was made out of the aforementioned investors. That way, if 10 people owned 10 ships between them and one sank, they would all still each get 9 tenths of the profit from the cargoes. These were very effective at pooling enough money and resources into colonialism and trade that it prompted the exploration age to happen. Joint stock companies were set up for practically every colonial endeavor a European power embarked on thereafter. These companies and their colonial practices propelled the European aristocracies to unparalleled wealth. Those who had enough money to take the risk of buying stocks in ships and did so became much, much wealthier than their ancestors in a much shorter period of time. The social mobility within the citizens of European countries increased. With that social mobility came the creation of a larger middle class and stronger middle class, who inevitably came to desire representation and rights. The existence of a middle class drove the Enlightenment in Western Europe. 
which led to the pursuit of more economic freedoms and ideals of human existence. So in the 18th century, English Enlightenment thinker John Locke proposed that, embodying the Enlightenment ideas, that life, liberty, and property were the rights of every man. They weren't quite willing to let women into the ideals of the Enlightenment yet. In the 1770s, recognizing that the revolution in the way money, property, and goods flowed between countries, Adam Smith wrote the economic but largely philosophical text on the wealth of nations in 1776. I'll discuss Smith's work soon, but I'll first continue with the timeline. So with all the free time that wealth and slaves allowed a country, philosophical and technological progress was being made. The rise of capitalism also sees the fall of religion and spiritualism as a determining force in the lives of many. The quote-unquote masters of our own idea of self-determination took hold in capitalist societies and further motivated the entrepreneurial, or at least capital-seeking, spirit. The capitalist system eventually became robust and advanced enough to finally do away with most slavery and look upon it with disgust and shame. Something probably not even fathomable to citizens and slaves of previous large societies and countries. Not only could goods and value be brought into a country's borders, the manufacture of goods could also generate a lot of wealth. Industrialists, or people who own or manage a factory or production supply chain, created factory jobs and in turn developed cities into urban areas of work and commerce. Around the late 18th century, the cities transformed into the kind that we see today. The new ways for capital to be generated also led to new ways in which people could contract their labor. So just to explain, the industrial production method is where the manufacture of a product is done in steps by many people. Something like a clock that would normally take weeks, if not months, to assemble or manufacture by one person or cottage industry. Whereas, the assembly line method breaks the construction of a clock into menial tasks. Simplicity on a large scale is the power behind the industrial way of production. Many people trained to do one simple task quickly are put together on a line. As the item is passed down the line, it is added to and assembled until a complete product is finished at the end of the line. Because less effort on the part of the individual worker is expended and more products are made, the price and accessibility of that item decreases massively. And remember, both the price to produce something on a large scale is less, and the price to buy it for a consumer is also less, if produced on an industrial scale rather than on an artisanal scale. Now, to talk a bit about how capitalism was thought to play out and to get a look at some of the issues in the capitalist system through the philosopher or economist Karl Marx, I'll paraphrase from an essay I wrote in late October. Here, I'll actually begin with a discussion of Marx, and then I'll move on to Adam Smith because I compare the context in which they're writing later. So, Marx was writing at a time during the full force of industrialization. He saw expanding colonial and industrial empires all over Europe, each pursuing the accumulation of vast amounts of capital. Marx identified that the backbone of these empires and the enablers of their ambitions was the common worker. Recently pulled out of their cottage industries and placed into large factories and given monotonous jobs. Marx believed that the world had divided itself into two camps, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. These two groups, employers and workers respectively, fundamentally had different goals in mind. The bourgeoisie wanted to fill their pockets with the spoils of ownership 
of factories and the vast production capacity that came with it. The proletariat wanted only to benefit themselves as a group, and if left uncoerced, would have all the motivation to do work with the goal of shared prosperity. Marx believed that the means of production could only be responsibly controlled by the people, the workers, to ensure an equitable society. Marx, however, does not address the inherent problem behind what he sees as the class struggle. In my opinion, this is the reoccurring establishment of an inequitable hierarchy. Marx has the expectation that once people lose their so-called chains, as he puts it, that they will not submit themselves or succumb to being controlled or used by a new force or system. Even if the means of production are firmly in the hands of workers, the economic relations between industries will cause factionalism between different industries and professions and even different strata in the workplace. With the advent of new forms of labor and production online in the modern world where no physical goods are created and most of the cost of labor is an overhead, Marxist theories are somewhat incapable of coping with the new ways online products and services work. The class struggle since Marx's time has in many ways changed and stayed the same. The notion of the division of labor has continued, however, with the advancements and modern dedication to technology due to the specialization of professions, the output of the individual worker has expanded, not just the output of the factory. With the aid of mechanical tools and global supply chains, the output of any one factory also soared, while the number of workers required plummeted. In post-industrial America in 1900, around 40% of the population lived on farms. Now this is post-industrial, after the Industrial Revolution. Now, around 1% live on farms, yet they sustain hundreds of millions of people, hundreds of millions more than in 1900. Despite the substantial concentration of wealth in the upper strata of society, the average buying power for consumers, no matter the income bracket, has also soared. Beginning after the advent of antitrust laws in the United States, the means of production have been democratized or at least made more transparent, with the government providing oversight to ensure the free flow of goods and labor in the market. The era of domination by a few industrialists is largely over. Since the late 19th century, the working class has become a recognized legal group in our society, worthy of protection and legislative and organizational structures to support them. The quote-unquote struggle that Marx proposes to exist has become diplomacy rather than war. So I cannot talk about Marx and Marxism without the issue of the practice of Marxism. There have been several attempts to facilitate a communist society, and Marx believed that the revolution would come about on the accord of workers after the bourgeoisie unwittingly gave the workers the tools to resist other forms of oppression once they realized that they had a greater common interest with each other than the bourgeoisie. Marx believed that this revolution would happen in an industrialized society. He also believed that communism would arise as a state following the widespread impending adoption of socialism. Communism rose in popularity in the 20th century, but did so in unstable countries without widespread industrialization whose people were nevertheless infatuated with industrialization's promise and sought to control that production themselves. First, communism arose to common practice in poor and undeveloped Russia. The Bolshevik workers created and maintained dispersed structures of political power in the cities of Russia, which united at the outset of the Russian Civil War. 
After winning the war, the people were faced with a murky choice, but an achievable one nonetheless. To either follow Lenin and listen to his call of continued unity and centralization, so that a prosperous economic environment or union between the workers and their respective collectives may be achieved and sustained under a Soviet Union. Or to disperse and maintain a more flat societal structure where the extent of politics rarely reaches higher than a local council. The workers decided to, whether by coercion or willing participation, to join the Soviet Union and work under the authority of a People's Politburo and their chairman. The ideal of this Russian workers' revolution and the Soviet state was for the thousands of collectives to produce goods which would be moved by representative bodies or a representative body of all industries and the Politburo of elected officials. The control over the means of production was with the workers in theory. The Russian labor and thus political situation fell apart quickly. Much decision-making power was stripped away from the workers by the more educated and politically adept members of the Communist Party. The workers had once again used the tools bestowed upon them by the upper class to overthrow their old lords, as Marx proposes it, yet like a tumor, another class formed out of the struggle against their former rulers. The power for a worker to organize was replaced by the pretense of already having influence over their interests through trade bureaus. This was far, far from the reality of the renewed suppression of the working class. Marx's idea, at least in my opinion, of how communism would arise and be successful depends on the preservation of the working class as a body of people with similar attributes. It relies on the assumption that there will always be a working class, which alienates itself from some other attributes and behaviors of the ruling or owning class, including an education in politics and other high-level trades which are necessary for sustaining a functional society on a large scale, or at least preserving the rights that workers have. The dislike of the aforementioned qualities by many communists leaves the working class, as Marx sees them, susceptible to the domination and oppression of tyrants. This is by no means a complete assessment of Marx, but it serves to give some context as well for the way that Marx and many other people saw the evolution of capitalism and what needed to change during the 19th century. Preceding Marx was Smith, writing in and on economics. Scottish economist Adam Smith's body of work was not so much based on theory or imagination of new social or economic paradigms. Smith wrote about essential changes he observed during the 18th century in the movement of goods and institutions of labor, which contrasted the previously mainstream economic mode of mercantilism. Smith conjectured a view of human nature where ambition is driven by the desire for self-benefit and that social relations between people exist in accordance with the needs of the individuals involved, and only because of the benefit to the parties involved, barring familial relations. Smith observed that the mode of industry transitioned from the production of goods in small volumes to the manufacturing of goods on assembly lines in high volume, as I mentioned previously. Smith believed that the material needs of humanity could be fulfilled by the highly efficient manufacturing supply chains. However, he did not anticipate that the material demands of the consumer would continually expand to meet and exceed the production of goods. Ultimately, according to Smith's conjecture, 
The interests of the workers and the interests of their employers are the same. That is, to bring increased wealth to themselves through increasing the value generated by their organizing body or corporation. Smith considered the boundary between worker and owner to be permeable, meaning that the poor can become wealthy on their own volition and ambition, and that the wealthy can also lose their fortunes. The typical spending patterns of the individual, Smith observed, are such that the purchase of locally or nationally produced goods are favored over foreign ones. The monetary support of local industries or organizations would inadvertently, on part of the individual spender, lead to the mutual benefit of that particular locality. This is the invisible hand theory. Smith's theory of humanity's self-preserving nature does not directly deal with the idea of our desire for self-preservation or benefiting ourselves, having a specific limit. Yet it is somewhat assumed in his writing that there is an upper limit. This is expressed by his belief that the capital held by an individual would at some point be re-injected into useful economic structures, thus contributing to the movement of capital into the pockets of the workers and into public works, like roads and schools. Given the overall failure, or at least lack of substantial gains that this trickle-down economic theory in the last quarter century has demonstrated, we can now observe that the accumulation of capital does not seem to only be a proxy for self-sustenance, but as a cause for the overconsumption of more and more consumer goods and non-essential expenses, no less for the sake of gaining capital for capital's sake. And when I say capital, I mean money or property. The economic relationship the average individual perceives between themselves and the greater economy is somewhat opaque, and the items people consume don't always give a return on investment to the purchaser, especially when they enter debt to do so. This is a trend we're seeing with the possession of credit cards. Debt among individuals is increasing. Smith believed that assembly line style production had revolutionized the movement of capital in his time and has continued to allow for the sustenance of an increasing number of individuals and increasingly better standards for those individuals. Yet, he recognized the inversely proportional relationship between the value of the worker and the capacity of production per worker. Before the Industrial Revolution, the average value generated by a worker per product manufactured would be roughly the price of their product. In essence, they earned what they made selling that product directly in whole. Yet now, thousands of widgets or items will be worked on by an individual every day, worked on in little bits, worked on monotonously by the dozens of workers on the line. The workers have little ownership of the production and the sale of their products. However, one has to consider the previous sentence and how it uses the term, their products. While the workers are the people producing the raw product, they choose to share ownership of it for business purposes. The workers, if adequately protected and represented, choose to transact their labor with that organizing body. The price is less money per product sold for the individual. The dividend is the ability to produce and sell more of the product. Ultimately, the workers benefit from entrusting their leadership to someone other than themselves. Organizations, like unions, exist to ensure that the workers' rights are protected in the aforementioned deal. Sadly, however, all too often do the power structures within workers' unions and corporations become corrupted by personal interest and ulterior motives. Smith's observations failed to identify that self-serving interests, when completely unchecked, lead to the impingement of others' ability to freely work and live. In essence, the free choice that I am afforded 
and I am prone to, may end up affecting someone else's ability to have freedom of choice and economic engagement. Adam Smith was not writing in anticipation of the long-term development of a capitalist world economy, but observing the cause and immediate effect of the economic developments in industrializing nations. Smith formulated a theory of human nature in which motivation for cooperative behavior in human societies is the self-serving interest of the individual. Smith expected that capital would typically move through the locality of the spender, re-injecting capital into local economies and thus benefiting the whole. Smith expected for there to be a quota of individual needs, which once met would satisfy their individualistic needs and provide room for altruism. The behavior of the world economy as a whole proves this wrong. With a general trend of capital to flow through systems which do not redistribute wealth, Around 100 years after Smith's writing, the conditions in factories and the power dynamic between industrialist and worker became untenable in many factories and became one of the foremost issues of the time. This is why Marx wrote on capitalism. It was resolved that certain structures needed to exist to ensure the fair treatment of the worker. One could not merely sit back and let the economy regulate itself entirely. So antitrust systems and other protections arose to ensure the fair treatment of the worker and their ability to fully participate or disengage in labor or with the market. Ideally, workers and owners have the same interests in mind, which mutually benefit the other. However, with large organizations like labor unions or corporations, personal interest under the pretense of collective representation, which ultimately does not benefit the whole, has emerged as a large problem and often causes entire sectors of industry or government to grind to a halt or collapse. It is apparent that some form of the invisible hand exists to move capital around and generate wealth mutually for all of society. However, there are circumstances where it favors the wealthy, arguably more circumstances, arguably less. Since the 18th century, things likely beyond Smith's imagination have occurred or arisen. Robotic workers, internet technologies, and crowdfunding are innovations which Smith couldn't have contemplated and thus made no provisions for in his writing. Yet the economic tenets which Smith identifies provide a solid foundation for theory and progress for the centuries to come after him. So now to dissect Marx and Smith together. The ideas and social outlooks of Karl Marx and Adam Smith are often contrasted in the unique light of the modern day. Smith, whose work identified economic rules which still govern our lives over 200 years later, and Marx, who wrote a contrasting theory over human nature at a crucial time in the development of capitalism, and whose suggestions were experimented by many nations throughout the 20th century. These philosophers, one making observations about current events and the other theorizing on what could be, respectively, define the political and economic landscape tremendously. When many contrast these two intellectuals, it really should be noted that Smith focused on fitting a theory of human nature in regards to economic cooperation and prosperity to the changing world around him. While Marx noticed the power dynamic between the labor and owner and political disenfranchisement of the working class amid the second industrial revolution and developed in communism an idealistic model of the potential world while in Das Kapital critiquing the current, by his time, climate of the world economy. Comparing a theory and a practice is incompatible in the sense of an economic climate. 
especially when dealing with the divergent thinkers from different times in history. The two philosophers did agree fundamentally on one thing, whose nature is of the utmost importance to theory and practice, but which is often taken for granted, I think. The fact that humans are stronger, smarter, and more capable of long-term prosperity together is something overlooked. Smith deals with this in his theory of human nature, arguing that once we realize cooperation benefits ourselves more than isolation, we progress to our current state. Marx, however, believes that it was the workers, and only the workers who once united in arms and ideals, could overcome the societal ills of his day. No matter the theory or practice, first and foremost, the nature and facilitation of interhuman cooperation should be considered and sustained. Thank you for listening to the third part of my series on economic theories. This will be the majority of my historical review and critique of economic modes and theories we have previously possessed and currently have. I hope you've enjoyed it. I might come back at some point with a discussion of more modern economic theories, particularly those in the 20th and 21st centuries. You can find me on Instagram at unknown dot underscore dot knowns. Thank you for listening. That's all I have for today, and goodbye.